Well, you know, there once was a time in Western society where one could talk about uh, the subject of marriage and the family, and that was, well, that was normal. A man would be married to a woman, and they would typically have kids, raise those kids together, so on and so forth. And that was looked upon as like a, like a good thing. That was, that was valued. You with me? Well, nowadays, to describe marriage in the family in the way I just talked about, one man, one woman, kids, well, let's, that's just a bit too narrow, isn't it? I mean, don't we even have TV shows that kind of show, teach us, like Modern Family and others, that that's just so old-fashioned? And, and to actually think that that is the way to conceive of a family, if you think that, you're narrow, you're old-fashioned, you're antiquated, and you know what? You're probably a bit intolerant, maybe a bit racist. Well, Andreas Kossenberger talks about this in his book about marriage and the family. Listen to this. He says, For the first time in history, Western civilization is confronted with the need to define the meaning of the terms marriage and family. What until now is considered a normal family, made up of a father, a mother, and a number of children, has in recent years increasingly begun to be viewed as one among several options, which can no longer claim to be the only or even superior form of ordering human relationships. The Judeo-Christian view of marriage and the family, with its roots in the Hebrew scriptures, has had to a significant extent been replaced with a set of values that prizes human rights, self-fulfillment, and pragmatic utility on an individual and societal level. It can be rightly said that marriage and the family are institutions under siege in our world today. And with marriage and the family, our very civilization is in crisis. Destroy marriage, you destroy the family. Destroy the family, you destroy society. It's critical. It's no wonder that Jesus, in Matthew 19, paints a picture of the family, paints a picture of marriage that is completely counter-cultural. I mean, what does the world say? The world says, look, live together, married or not, have kids, maybe married or not, and if you decide to get married and you're not happy, get out of it. You should bail. You, you deserve to be happy. And the world says, and look, if you're going to have kids, wait as long as you can to have kids. And when you do, please, for everyone's sake, just have one or two. The world says, look, acquire as much wealth as possible so that you can be safe and, and you can live a life of, of leisure and enjoyment. You know, the, the world says, hey, at the end of the day, don't, don't fret over other people. Take care of yourself, right? I mean, you can't take care of them. Take care of yourself. 
But in the next two chapters of Matthew, Jesus takes all of what I just said and flips it on its head. He says divorce is wrong. Children are to be valued. Wealth is actually an obstacle to virtue. And the greatest of all will be a servant. Today, we've come to this first bit on marriage and divorce. There can be few of us in this room, and I know this from chatting with many of you, who have not been touched in some way by divorce. Perhaps you're here today and you're someone who has been divorced, or maybe someone very close to you, like a family member, has experienced divorce, and and you've helped them walk through this painful process. We're all too familiar with the hurts that divorce can cause. Often divorce is painful, and it's a messy process. There's a financial cost to it. There's an emotional cost to it of a family being torn apart. I mean, the scars of divorce usually last a long time, sometimes 5, 10, 20 years, It's a bit awkward when you get together as a big family and mom and dad can't even be in the same room together. Honestly, often the only real winners in divorce are the lawyers. So what I want to do is first flag two or three things when we look at this subject. Okay? So let me me give three caveats. These aren't our points. They're not going to come up here. Nigel's not in the back, so he's not going to type them out for you guys. You're going to have to, he who has ears, let him hear, okay? So first is this, divorce is not an unforgivable sin. Divorce is sin, but God's grace is greater than all our sin, okay? Second, I am not going to be able to answer all of your questions about marriage, remarriage, and divorce in the next 30 minutes. If anything, I'm just going to cause you to have more questions. Third, I don't want to give a topical sermon on divorce and remarriage. Like, in other words, I don't want us to open up the Bible, sort of just read these words, close our Bibles, and then launch into, you know, a, a whole sermon trying to cover this topic. Uh, that There may be a day for that, might be valuable to sort of bring together all the different passages that talk about marriage and talk about divorce and give what's called a topical sermon on that. That's probably appropriate. But remember, we're going through chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the gospel of Matthew. And so what I want to do is really look carefully at the words of Jesus, particularly here in Matthew 19, and just sort of narrow our focus to that. Does that make sense? So what is Jesus's view then on marriage? What's Jesus' view on marriage? That will be verses 3 through 6 of this chapter. And then what is Jesus' view of divorce? And that'll be verses 7 through 9. What is Jesus' view of marriage? What is Jesus' view of divorce? We need to pray because this is, like I said, a subject that has had a ripple effect on many of us. Uh, My parents are divorced, for example. And my dad is remarried and and all those things. And so this is not, uh, it should be a subject that none of us have experienced, but unfortunately, probably it's had a ripple effect on everyone. Like I said, if it's not you personally or your parents, it's someone you know, a close friend or whatever. And so what we want to do is be 
approaching the Lord saying with a teachable heart and saying, God, what, do you, what do you, have you said in your word and how can we, um, what's our place in all of that, okay? So let's pray. Let's look to the Lord in prayer and then we'll, we'll unpack those two points. Jesus' view on divorce and, or marriage and divorce, okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather around a very relevant subject. Lord, uh, you are not um, unaware of the idea of marriage. You created it. And Lord, because of sin, you've seen marriages and sadly um, break down. And Lord, there's people here in this room that are already on the defense. Uh, they might feel a sense of um, a bit on the spotlight or a bit of an attack. Help them to get out of themselves and to look to you, the Lord Jesus, who is gracious and loving, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, who died, uh, who died in the place of sinners. And Lord, may they look to you and be encouraged by your work on the cross on their behalf. And Lord, for, the, for those of us that are single and married and everyone in between, uh, would you teach us, mold us, and shape us according to your word in Christ's name. Amen. So let me, as we jump into Matthew, um, I'll, give, I'll give you kind of, I'll show you my cards here, um, and this is my opinion, my, my um, not so humble opinion. I, Matthew is the best of the gospel books, just going to throw that out there, because one of the things that Matthew does is he writes in such a way um, by pinning these little statements his work is this beautiful tapestry. It's this beautiful work of art showing Jesus is the Messiah and that those who connect themselves to Jesus the Messiah are defined not by Jewish ethnicity, but by faith in this, Jew, in this Christ, this Messiah, who is God with us. God with us from the beginning in Emmanuel, God with us at the end, 28. So, so what we're, there's this huge 28 chapters of Matthew, and what's helpful is Matthew actually flags for you when he's doing a transition piece. Okay, so Matthew 7 says this, verse 28, and when Jesus finished these sayings, well, what sayings is he referring to? If you want to flip there, Matthew 7, 28, you can. Again, because what, what, what I want you to see is that there's these little statements, these little repeated expressions where Matthew flags where he's going, okay? So Matthew 7, 28, and when Jesus finished these sayings, what sayings is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the Sermon on the Mount. And right on the heels of this, what do you see Jesus doing the next several chapters? He is healing people. You have these discipleship moments. And then Matthew inserts this little transition phrase. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. You see, with every new section, Matthew makes sure to flag it for you. Uh, how about after Jesus gave this stack of parables in Matthew 13? And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went on from there. Y are you starting to hear the pattern? And when Jesus, and when it came to pass that after Jesus had said this and after Jesus had said that, then this happens. After every major discourse, he puts in these little markers or expressions to signal that a new section is about to begin. So you have chapters one through four, narrative. You with me? Then five, six, and seven, discourse, Sermon on the Mount. Then back to a narrative, eight, nine, ten. 
Then back to discourse. It's these teaching blocks that Matthew gets, gives. Now, why am I sharing all this with you so you, you can be impressed that I went to seminary? Uh, no. Um, but look what our passage, how it starts today. Um, now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, does that sound familiar? There's the pattern. Now we know that something's going to transition here. He went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. So what's the transition here? Well, it's partly geographical, right? But where's he headed to? Well, he's headed to Jerusalem. What happens in Jerusalem? The crucifixion. The trek to the holy city has begun. Each step forward is another step closer to the cross. In fact, the people of Galilee, you remember Galilee is where he's done most of his ministry? They won't see him again until after his resurrection. This is a massive turning point in Matthew's gospel. Jesus is poised to head to Jerusalem, but on the way up, the opposition becomes more heated and focused. Check out what I mean in verses 1 through 2. You see? Now, when Jesus had finished these things, sayings, right? He went away from Galilee and entered into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. So what's he doing? He's going from place to place. And what's he doing here? He's healing people. Now, imagine we just sort of read that and go, yeah, 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 yeah. And then we get to the juicy stuff on like divorce and marriage and all that. But, but imagine, let's just sort of try to put ourselves boots on the ground here. Jesus is going from place to place, and he's healing all of these people. Who knows what kind of diseases were cured that day? Imagine if you had, and some of you know, because you've had a husband or a wife or a brother or a sister or a friend suffer for years with some dreadful and seems to be incurable disease, and how stressful that is. The entire family has carried the weight of this for who knows how long. But then you, one day, imagine, you hear through the grapevine that there's this prophet going around and he's curing people of their diseases. And you think, well, let's get, let's get this family member to this guy. And you show up and there is Jesus and there's your suffering family member, maybe <gasps> gasping for air, maybe has some awful pain in their back or their hip or whatever, and Jesus instantly cures them. Like it doesn't take a few weeks. It doesn't take like, here, you know, take this over the next several weeks or months or whatever. It's just like they come up and Jesus heals them. And, and all of a sudden, they're like you knew them before. They're, they're smiling. They're walking around. They're breathing better. Can you imagine what kind of emotions would run through your family as you saw that this person for several years who was just like just just near death almost every day and then is healed and walking around can you imagine the not only would there be tears of joy for you but it's not just you and your family you look around and all these other people are coming and the same thing's happening think of all the stories behind all these healings and think of the enthusiasm in the crowd Right? If you, I mean, this is, this, this is way better than any concert and the anticipation for it. This is more exciting than any political rally or anything. This, this is amazing. 
And, and who comes, though, have you ever experienced this, just when everyone's kind of like, woohoo, someone comes and throws a wet blanket on it. You know, everyone's really excited. Everyone's kind of high-fiving each other. I don't know if they did that back then, knuckle bumping. Don't know if they did that back then. But, but you get the point. Everyone's hugging and their tears of joy. And, 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 and who comes to rain on the parade? Who comes? It's the Pharisees. We've seen these blokes before on the stage in Matthew. When they came last time, they were coming to have a go at Jesus, to test him. And they're back at it again. They haven't come to this big service to celebrate. They've come to squabble. Look at verse 3. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? The question they ask is not for the sake of information or a desire to learn. Can you, can you hear, can you catch the way they phrase the question? They haven't come to be taught, but to test. They're, they're trying to trip him up. They're hoping he'll say something that will damage his reputation. Perhaps giving him in trouble with Herod Antipas. Or maybe even seem to contradict Moses. Look carefully at their insidious inquiry. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Another way of putting it, is it lawful to divorce a wife on any pretext, whatever? Do you notice in their question, it presupposes that divorce is actually acceptable. It's okay. You've got to love how Jesus responds to them here. It's quite a cheeky response to these well-read theologians and opponents. Have you boys not read? Of course they've read. They pro like, have you not read your Bibles? And if they were Aussies, they'd go, yeah. Right? Of course we've read it. We have the first few chapters memorized. Jesus, well, have you not like read your Bibles? Yes, we have Genesis memorized and Genesis 2 and 3 and so on. And Jesus says, okay, fine. You want to know my view of you want to know my view of marriage? You want to know my view of divorce? And he takes his listeners all the way back to the very beginning to God's original plan in verse 4. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they no longer two but one flesh. Jesus brings together Genesis 1.27, Genesis 2.24. He, he binds these two together and he says, this is my view of marriage. Now, a few things we can pick up on the surface if you look there. The first is that marriage was God's idea. It's not like some random bloke came up with this during the Romantic Renaissance era and says, why don't we... Why don't we just, let's call it marriage, and we'll just, you know, let's just, let's try this. God created marriage. He came up with it. Marriage is instituted by Him. And He created it to be a monogamous, heterosexual union. Look at verse 4 again. He answered, have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female? 
God's creation of Eve demonstrates that his plan for Adam's marriage and every marriage after it involve a monogamous heterosexual union. The Lord made one suitable helper for Adam, and she was female. One woman for one man for life. Look at verse 5. And he said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Can you see that marriage is permanent? Marriage is a lifelong commitment. You leave and you cleave. Now, the, lo- the notion of leave there has the idea of turning one's back on. Not in a negative sense, but you are actually leaving behind your family to create, so is your spouse coming together and you're creating a new family. And the idea of cleave can mean to cement or to be glued to. In marriage, a man and a woman leave their parents and come together to form a new family. And this union is, this union is so tight that they're no longer two, but one. And one in the physical sense as well. One man and one woman joined together for life. The Pharisees seemed to miss that, didn't they? That they're so focused on divorce, they can't even see the beauty of God's... And isn't it interesting how Jesus, they say, what's your view on divorce? And he goes, before I give you my view on divorce, how about I give you my view on marriage first? This is how God created them. This is the way God did it. Jesus considered marriage a sacred bond between a man and a woman, established by and entered into before God as long as they both shall live. Marriage is the single most lasting relationship in life. Think about it. Children, I'm not, not talking to you kids, where they're going to think I was talking to them. Um, children, they, those are my kids. I'm not sure. um, children, they, they, you, you raise them, as, as I'm doing now with my kids, and, and, but eventually they, they grow up and they, they leave the home, right? Uh, brothers and sisters, you can be really close with them, but eventually they form their own families, right? They move on. Uh, friendships, you know, friendships come and go. But marriage is the one relationship which people live in the same house, eat at the same table, and sleep in the same bed as long as they live on this earth. You see, the Pharisees invited Jesus into a legal debate, but he says that the Lord's plan from the beginning was no divorce. Divorce was not the original blueprint. But sadly, as we know, marriages sometimes do break down. They do dissolve. Divorce snaps the sacred bond between husband and wife. So then what is Jesus' view on divorce then? Again, first he hits his view on marriage, but what is his view on divorce? Well, coming into verse 6, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And so then the Pharisees come back to him. They say, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. So what's going on here? what's, what's, What's this little 
you know, uh, tiff that's, that's happening between Jesus and the religious leaders. Well, he, he states what marriage is, and then they rebuttal it with, yeah, but what about Deuteronomy 24? That's, that's what they're referring to there. You see, the Pharisaic mind looked for loopholes. So let me read for you. If you want to flip there to Deuteronomy quickly, you can. Deuteronomy 24. I'm just going to read the first four verses. And as I do, try to put yourself... I know this is, you know, I know they're the bad guys, but try to put yourself in the Pharisee's shoes or sandals for a moment. And you can follow along or you can listen along. Try to see if you can catch loopholes in this passage in Deuteronomy 24 when it comes to divorce, okay? Because that's what they're doing. So, Deuteronomy 24 when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. It's quite a complicated text, particularly if you're just reading it quickly, right? Nevertheless, this text shouldn't be construed as some kind of endorsement to divorce your, your spouse, full stop. No, 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 no. Moses puts it here in order to mitigate, this is important, listen, Moses puts this here in order to mitigate what was occurring. Deuteronomy 24 was never intended as a manual on how to divorce your spouse 101. Let me give you an example. Uh, law. We have laws here in Australia, right? Some laws are called case laws, and some laws are legislative laws. There's a difference. Um, some laws given as legislation, a list of rules that need to be followed. Don't speed, don't do this, right? Other laws given by describing a situation and then telling you what to do in that situation. If this happens, then do this. You, you following? That's called case law. Deuteronomy 24 is a classic example of this second kind of law. It's case law. So it's pretty clear that the thrust actually describes a situation rather than prescribes one. It's describing a situation, not saying, this is what you need to do. But the Pharisees emphasized that a man had the right to divorce his wife for any reason. I mean, just think about the phrase there. It was in the very beginning, if you read it, some indecency in her. What does that mean? If you found some indecency in her, then, well, he has, I suppose, by case law, he has technically the right to divorce her. What does what does find indecency in her even mean? Well, let me give you a tale of two rabbis. A tale of two rabbis. One had a very, very liberal understanding of what some indecency in her meant. Um, that could mean anything that she hasn't borne him children, that He's not attracted to her anymore. Um, and that she even burnt his food. Uh, Rabbi 
Hillel was his name. And during Jesus' day, many of the folks actually held on to this view. You know, if a Rabbi Hillel would have made a great master chef judge, right? Uh, if the meal was a little burned or the meat was un- undercooked, that was enough to send her packing. Terrible. Now, the other school of thought was the other rabbi was Rabbi Shammai, and he was much more narrow. He taught that the only ground of divorce was adultery. So you see, two ways to look at Deuteronomy, very liberal, very loose, or, very, or more conservative. And they're saying, which camp are you in, Jesus? Now, there's a written collection of Jewish traditions called the Mishnah that I think break down these two camps. I'm just going to read it to you. It says, the school of Shammai say, a man may not divorce his wife unless he has found unchastity in her, because it is written, he has found some indecency in her. So you you hear that? That's the conservative school. And the school of Hillel say, he may divorce her even if she spoiled a dish for him, for it is written, because he has found something indecent in her. You burnt my toast, you're done. (laughs) Now, again, this was the popular view. This was quite, uh, I guess, the conventional wisdom of Jesus' day. Uh, Let me give you an example. Are you familiar with the famous Josephus, the Jewish historian? He held this view. He says this, at this time, this is Josephus, I sent my wife away, being displeased with her behavior. Then I took a woman from Crete. Rat bag. He also commented on Deuteronomy 24 saying this. So this is his comment on Deuteronomy 24. The man who wishes to be divorced from his wife for whatever cause, and among people, many such may arise, must certify it in writing. Can you hear what camp he's in? See, divorce policies and practices during this time were very, very loose. But Jesus shows up, and what does he do? Like, she doesn't really land in either camp. Um, He gives his disciples an authoritative explanation of how to understand marriage and divorce. Look at verse 8. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual morality and marries another commits adultery. Whoa. Did you read that? Do you feel the weight of what Jesus is saying there? Uh, The religious leaders of Israel taught that to divorce your wife, you know, you give her a certificate of divorce and send her away. End of story. Done and dusted. But Jesus says that's not the end of the story. If a man divorces his wife for whatever reason, then he makes her commit adultery. The reason being she would either quickly get married again or, what was more likely, she would turn to prostitution to support herself. Different day, different age. Jesus says that adultery isn't just something you commit in the flesh or in the mind, but also something you can be responsible for making someone else commit through divorce. Divorce is a very serious matter that leads to sin. It's not all over with with a certificate being handed over. All right, so far... We've looked at what the religious leaders in Jesus' day were teaching about divorce. And we've seen Jesus' maximum application of what the Old Testament says, right? Right? Yeah? No? Kind of. What have I left out? What have I kind of... uh, And I'm not scared to dodge this. What have have we not concentrated on here? The exception clause. Right? 
adultery. Yeah, but, but, the, but the exception clause is there, right? So come again to verse 9. I, I don't want to hide from it. I don't want to dodge it. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, here it is, except for sexual morality and marries another, commits adultery. Now, here's what's interesting. Both Mark and Luke don't give this exception clause. It's only Matthew. But just because this phrase is only in Matthew, it's still there, staring you in the face, so it needs to be addressed. And as thinking Christians, I don't believe we have the freedom to push aside this exception clause simply because it's only given once or twice in Scripture. I think we actually need to see it and think on it. So, What's the other time it's used in Matthew? Go to the left in your Bible to chapter 5. Let's have a look at it. This is the Sermon on the Mount. And look at what Jesus says there concerning marriage and divorce. Matthew chapter 5, verse 31, I believe. Yep. Matthew chapter 5. So again, we've seen Jesus' first point, his, his view of marriage, but is there ever a circumstance where it's okay to divorce if you're a Christian? Well, let's look what he says. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery adultery. Now, is it ever okay for a Christian to get a divorce? And, uh, probably okay is the wrong word, um, but is divorce ever permitted as a Christian? Well, it seems like there is one exception, and that's here, and that is unfaithfulness, adultery. The word you used there, if you're looking at there, is pornea which is where we get the word pornography. It's pornographic. Pornea has a wide range of meaning, though. It's a broad term that covers everything from prostitution, bestiality, incest, homosexuality, and other sexual sins. In the context here, it would seem to be any illicit sexual activity. And this sexual immorality violates the one flesh union. It can destroy the marital bond. It strikes so closely at what marriage is that it can be a legitimate reason for ending a marriage. But notice carefully Jesus does not command divorce here. He permits it. And so we need to hear what this passage is saying. If there is divorce for any reason other than adultery, then you cause your spouse to sin. Unless he or she has already committed sexual morality, in that case, the wife has already committed sin, and so the husband isn't responsible for causing her to commit sexual sin if he divorces her. But again, let me say this as clearly as I can. Adultery doesn't necessarily spell the end of a marriage. Jesus permitted rather than required divorce in the case of adultery. Jesus permitted, didn't require, if you discover that your spouse is having an affair, 
that doesn't give you an immediate wholesale license to go out and get a divorce. Your marriage can still be restored. A Christian wife can seek to forgive her husband because Christ has forgiven her. It's by fighting to save the marriage and exercising repentance and forgiveness that the full extent of the gospel is displayed. Regardless how you understand the exception clause here in Matthew, the one thing Jesus certainly isn't doing is encouraging divorce. Too often we allow the exception to become the rule. And the irony is, in a passage that's inherently anti-Pharisaic, like this one, there's a problem if our discussion focuses on what we can get away with. Isn't that what he's after? Isn't that what he's, he's, he's combating that in the Sermon on the Mount? I mean, the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount, it's not meant to be a race to the very bottom. Jesus is calling his disciples to a heart type of righteousness. His disciples are meant to live as salt and light to a watching world. And that's going to be reflected in the way we work at our marriages. Now, at this point, I think it'd be appropriate to actually talk about abuse just briefly. I mean, it's crazy that Jesus doesn't give any specific direction about abuse, right? I mean, if, if there was any exception Jesus was going to give, I, I'd expect him to say that divorce is okay if there is abuse, but he doesn't. However, I think that what we can confidently say that if there is, is a spouse, it's usually, but not always, the wife, is in a physical danger, then there are grounds for separation, at least for a period of time. Separation is a big deal, and we should only go down that line very carefully. But listen, if you think you're in danger, we as your church, as brothers and sisters in Christ, will do everything that we can day and night to help you and support you, and you should call the authorities. Lastly, let me close with a few thoughts. I want to give a word to those of you that are divorced. I want to give a word to those of you that are separated. I want to give a word to those of you that are married. I want to give a word to those of you that are singles and then to everyone. Sound good? If you're divorced, and if it wasn't biblical, then you need to repent of that before God. As we've always said here time and again, our sins, they are many, but His mercy is more. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. All of history, dear friend, is heading towards a new heaven and a new earth. Because of the gospel, we have a marriage that will never fail because Christ has pledged his loyalty to us. That's a beautiful thing. If you're separated, then seek to be reconciled to your spouse. You need to do everything in your power to restore the relationship. There will be hard days ahead, but with the help of God's Spirit, it is possible. I have a friend in Queensland right now that is separated from his wife and his wife has since started coming back around to church and they're having conversations. Don't know if they'll be reconciled or not, but there's a whole story there that I don't have time to explain, but it's a beautiful thing. And he's been praying for that for years. So if you're separated, if you're married, then you need to work hard at your marriage, dear friends. Grow it, build it, and live, live as if divorce is never an option. 
You know, on your, on your wedding day, those of you that have been married, when, when if you exchange vows, and if they're traditional vows, you know, do you take this woman, you know, to have and to hold in sickness and in health? And you're kind of like, of course. Look at her, of course, right? And then several years down the track, when the car breaks down, and the kids are whiny, and the finances are tight, and it's a rainy day, and you're struggling along in life, and you're stressed, that's when you reiterate that commitment. Sickness and in health, till death do you part. Till death do you part. If you're married, dear friend, work at it. Make it the most, one of the most important things you do in life. Live in such a way like it's a competition with your spouse, and you're trying to outserve them. That's what someone told me when I was engaged to April. I said, picture it like a competition, and April's super competitive, <laughs> right? And he said, you, you know, picture this as a competition, and you're trying to live in such a way, and you, you get what I'm saying. Don't, don't take that to the, don't be, don't be silly. You, you get the idea of what I'm saying. You're trying to live in such a way, you're loving your spouse. It's like a competition. That's if you're married. If you're single, if you're single, think carefully about whom you marry. Because marriage is not a place where you escape from problems. Marriage is a place where you find problems that you know you never existed. <laughs> yeah. And it's such a big deal. The, long, the longer I'm married, I just celebrated 18 years with my beautiful bride. And the longer I'm married, you know, the more we talk about it. Boy, we were just talking about this. We had um, dinner on Saturday night together. And, and um, well, not Saturday night. Friday, was it Friday night? You watch the kids. Friday night. And um, we are just saying, wow, you know, at the time we were, April's 22, I was 24, we loved each other, wanted to get married. I, I had no idea just how all the ramifications that come with marriage, right? You just, you don't in your young 20s. And, and you sort of, you learn and you grow together, you adapt, you, there, there's so much. So if you're single, this is not just, I, I, just to encourage you, if, if you want to get married, in your desperation, don't just grab the first person that's willing to say, I do. It, it, you are going to save, don't do that. Save yourself the trauma. Like, this is a massive, one of the biggest decisions you'll ever make in your life. So, now, a word to all of us here at this church. Uh, we must collectively, and, and hear this, collectively encourage marriages amongst our congregation. Those who are already married, we must encourage to be faithful to their marital bonds. Perhaps after today, you may have friends come up to you in a time when they are prepared to end their relationship with their spouse, and they're coming to seek for your advice. This is a time where you can take an opportunity to refer them back to biblical principles, back to the vows they made, and make sure make sure they don't make a hasty decision. They trust you. That's why they're talking with you. They'll listen to you. So look them in the eye and say, now let's, let's think through this one more time. I know you feel right. I know how you feel right now. I know it seems over, but there's hope in the God who created marriage. The reality is divorce is a very, very difficult and messy topic. It has tragic consequences. There is no one thing that can be said that will cover all the systems and scenarios. There's lots of variables out there. Real life throws up real situations. They're more messy and more difficult than we've ever even thought of. What might be right in one situation might not be right in another. 
But we need wisdom as we seek to navigate the effects of sin. See, divorce is a serious matter, and our marriages are wonderful places to show God at work. So let me wrap up by reading just a passage from Ephesians 5. It's a beautiful display of marriage. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, so much more can be said, and we pray that the discussions that we have today would be honoring to you. Lord, this is such an incredibly complex and huge topic, but I pray that you would bless the discussions in the growth groups, the discussions over morning tea, and Lord, may we be active as people here in this church to encourage the marriages that do exist among us. May we be gentle and loving and compassionate with those that have experienced divorce. Lord, we praise you again that we can look to you for why relationships exist, how you have defined them in your word, and Lord, how you've created marriage to be. What a beautiful thing that is. In Christ's name, amen.